0: Outcast is proud to be the first podcast novel listed at podcalgary.org. Welcome to Outcast, Episode 10. Outcast is a podcast only novel written and read by Chris Fitzman. His novel contains mature themes, language, and violence. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Chapter 10 I never thought in a million years I could be so detached from time by something so simple as a conversation. Thinking back on it now, I'm not sure if it was the conversation itself or the simple act of conversing I found so enthralling. I hadn't had a chance to really talk with anyone since leaving the hospital, and even my chat with Silas hadn't been all that fulfilling. Silas had been more of a listener to my story up to that point, but he hadn't said much about himself. That night, though, the night the cougar finally let that tough exterior of hers drop just a little, I realized how much I'd missed the simple act of dialogue, of talking to someone and interacting with them. I learned a lot about her that night, and most importantly, I finally learned her name. She was called Tequi, and she wasn't a native of Shanto. She was, in fact, from a country far across the northern sea, where the influence of Bengalis' so-called modern age had yet to fully establish itself. The land was called Tanaya. Imagine a world where time mostly stood still for the past few thousand years, and you would have a pretty good idea of what Tanaya was like. Setting foot on Tanayan soil was akin to taking a massive leap back in time. Back to when the time of the ascensions was less a legend, and more of a tangible though distant memory. Vast expanses of rolling prairie land dominated most of the country. Marred only by a few small cities and villages. To the far north, the massive Etnala mountain range marked the natural boundary between Tanaya and the tundra Lands of Moshala and Freyal. Tanaya had been slow to embrace the benefits of interstellar commerce to the point where, compared to Shanto, they seemed almost primitive. While some dismissed them as such, many Shantoans tended to look at the Tanayan way as simpler, less filled with the many stresses one puts on oneself in a so called advanced society. Of course, It was easy to say that while sitting in an overstuffed armchair watching a documentary about Tanai on the telescreen. Tribal life, according to Te was hard. From dawn till dusk, the time was spent constantly on the go. Everyone had their duties to the tribe, which had to be done on a daily basis were they to survive. Some days, the hunters would set out early in the morning, often returning with one or two kel carcasses in tow. Upon the hunter's return, the woman would set to work on the carcasses, ensuring as much of them as possible was taken. Flesh became food, hide became clothing, and the bones became things like tools, trinkets, and in some cases, children's toys. The hunt was as much a matter of tribal survival as it was a rite of passage. Males who came of age were only considered adults when they successfully killed their first kill. I remember her smirking after she said that, then telling me that this method of passage was a lot tamer than how it used to be. I also remember shuddering at the hidden meaning behind that statement. The last of the Ascension Wars were fought on Tanayan soil, and were only won out of a matter of sheer numbers. The Tanayan tribes fought with a zeal that was part religious, part insanity, and part bloodlust. They were a sight to be feared, racing over the battlefields, their first streaked with tribal markings and brandishing weapons meant solely for mutilating one's opponent. It was said that the mere sight of a Tanayan warrior in full battle regalia was enough to turn back an entire invading army. Mostly because where one was, surely more were nearby. When it came to the subject of her exile, Taki seemed dodgy, evasive. I didn't push it, figuring that even after two years away from her homeland, The memory of how she came to be in Chanteau was still a painful one. And in truth, it really didn't matter to me how she arrived here. The fact was, she was here now, and she was under my care. Well, at least for another week. After that, who knew? I remember feeling a little cheated when I thought about that week. I'd finally gotten to know a bit about this enigmatic cougar who'd literally fallen into my lap, and I only had a few short days before there would be no reason for her to stay. In the back of my mind, I wondered briefly if it would have been better if we'd remained at odds for that second week. It would have made our parting of the ways that much easier. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. With the tension between us all but gone, the first few steps had been taken that could eventually lead to us becoming, well, friends. Then, of course, there was that whole little peck on the cheek from earlier that night. That had been something completely unexpected, especially from someone with whom I'd been at odds until just a few minutes before. Was she just being friendly, or was there something more behind it? I never really got the chance to answer that question, for just when I was about to ask, she turned to the window and I saw her amber eyes go wide. "Gods," she said with a hint of a giggle in her voice. "'We talked all night.' I followed her gaze, and sure enough, I could see through the window that the sky was indeed beginning to lighten. We should get some sleep. I nodded in agreement and headed over to where Takey's medicine was. As she settled on her mat, I brought the cup over to her. She drank it quickly, scowled at the flavor as usual, and then held out the cup for me. As my hand wrapped around the cup, my fingers brushed up against hers. An awkward silence passed between us at that moment. "'I wasn't sure what to do next. "'Was I supposed to just take the cup and be done with it? "'Or should I...? "'Thanks,' she said quietly. "'She brought her other hand up to my muzzle and stroked it gently. "'For everything, Dallin. "'Thank you.' "'Like the kiss earlier, her touch made my entire body tingle with... "'Well, I really didn't know back then. "'It left me feeling at the same time warm... Happy, sad, nervous, and a little fearful. As it was, I tried to savor that touch as much as I could, but it didn't last very long. She gently pulled her hand away from my face and let go of the cup at the same time before laying down. It didn't take long before she was fast asleep, and I pulled her blanket up to her neck, and I heard her sigh softly. I must have looked like a fool at that point, sitting by where she lay, doing nothing but smiling goofily at her. In truth, I didn't know how else to act. I mean, I wasn't naive in the ways of love back then, but there's a huge difference between imagination and reality. In any dreams I've had of Shiana and I, particularly about our wedding night, everything was perfect. I would carry her over the threshold of our new home, both of us drunk on wine and our love for each other. Our hands knew exactly where to be, how to move, as though we'd rehearsed it a thousand times before. Our lips and hands found all the places on each other that made us moan and mule in pleasure. And when we finally consummated our marriage, there was no hesitation or awkwardness. I knew exactly how I would feel, how I would make her feel as we moved together in our primal dance of love and lust when it was over, the night would cover us in its darkness as one by one the candles burned out. And we would fall asleep in each other's arms, warmed by our love and the prospect of our blissful life as husband and wife. Now, as I sat watching Takei sleep, I realized that I knew nothing. If her mere touch was enough to make my mind go completely sideways, then what would have been my reaction to Shiana? If I couldn't stop smiling from a mere peck on the cheek and a stroke on my muzzle, then how would I act after a lust-soaked kiss? A fleeting vision of my head exploding danced over my mind, and I couldn't help but chuckle. I yawned again and realized any feelings or uncertainties I had about her or the future wouldn't be answered until the morning. I gave Takee one last look before turning towards my own bed and crawling under the blanket. It didn't take long before sleep overtook me and gently lifted from me the burdens of all my questions and concerns before replacing them with a nightmare. I was being led down the center aisle of the temple like I had before, but instead of my family remaining silent, they were all shouting, uttering curse after curse at me as I was dragged towards the altar. Others were there too. All the people I'd ever known and loved. All hurling insults, curses, whatever obscenities they could at me. The walk seemed to take forever, and when I finally reached the altar, it wasn't Sereth and the council I faced. No. Instead, it was Kha'on himself who stood before me, glowering at me with utter contempt in his eyes. To his left, Rattal stood there, also glaring at me from under his mask, those crimson eyes seemingly burning into my soul. I tried to turn away, or at least avert my eyes from viewing the Divine, but whoever was holding me forced me to look straight at the altar, A blade pressed firmly to my neck. Kha'on started shouting at me, uttering words in a language I'd never heard before, though his tone told me he wasn't throwing compliments my way. I tried to look away from him, but my only other alternative was to stare at Ratel, and his gaze did nothing short of chill me to the bone. At least with Kaon, I knew where I stood. With the God of War, there was no telling. Suddenly Kaon drew forth his sword and struck at me much like Father had. However, the blade cut far deeper than before, though I still lived. For some reason, my arms were no longer bound, and I tried desperately to cover the wound with my hands. It did little, and I watched in horror as my blood spilled out onto the floor, forming a pool before me. Then, out of that pool rose three shapes. Within moments, they finally took form, and I reeled as the three servals I'd buried only a few days before now stood before me, covered in blood. My blood. The three of them all stared at me, contempt in their eyes. The eldest one, the one who died first, pointed her finger at me, accusingly. The other two followed suit just before Kaon roared out in rage and swung his sword again, this time in the three servos. The moment his blade touched them, they exploded into sprays of blood that covered my body. I could taste it on my tongue, feel it as it stung my eyes. When my vision cleared, I saw that Ratal had also drawn his sword, and together, Patron and God moved towards me, blade raised. And then, just when I felt their steel cut into me, I woke up. My chest scar was throbbing so violently I thought I'd ruptured it. Luckily, that wasn't the case. My heart was pounding, and try as I might, it felt like I couldn't take in enough air. As a cub, I'd had nightmares before, but none as vivid as that. After a few minutes, I tried to lay back down, but the thought of reliving that same nightmare kept my eyes from closing. Sure, it was a weekend, and for the next three days I'd have nowhere I needed to be. But I also knew how I'd feel if I didn't get at least a couple of hours worth of sleep. Yet no matter how I tried, the second I closed my eyes I could feel that vision from the deepest of hells rising up again. I rolled onto my side after a while and looked at Teki. She looked so peaceful lying there, and I had to admit I felt a bit jealous of her. At the same time, though, I felt relieved that I'd been silent through my entire ordeal. Maybe it was just foolish pride or ego, but I didn't want her to have to worry about me. She was the sick one here. She was the one who needed to recover. I was her caregiver. I didn't have time to be sick. Or worse, weak. Oh, if only that kind of stubbornness could have worked with respect to my want to sleep. I tried forcing my eyes closed with those final thoughts in my head, but it didn't help. Instead, I ended up lying on my side, watching Te with increasingly jealous eyes as she continued to sleep peacefully. As I watched her, I started thinking about our conversation earlier, and how it all began outside by the grave. I felt a smile creep onto my face as I recalled the sensation her little kiss had given me, as well as the lingering touch on my cheek just before she fell asleep. Her touch had been so gentle, so affectionate, my insides felt warm just thinking about it. My eyelids began to grow heavy once more, and this time I didn't try to fight it. Instead, I kept the memories of Teke's affections in my mind as long as I had conscious control over it, and when sleep finally did claim me, it did so without dredging up that nightmare. The next two days were blissfully normal, something for which I was thankful. After the week I'd had, both as a dock worker and a student of Lautari, I was grateful just to have a few days to decompress. Had Tequi's mood not changed when it did, I'm not sure how I would have survived another week of either ordeal. Most of our time was spent outside exploring, well, as much as we could, anyway. Though halfway through her treatment, Tequi was still weak in body, if not in spirit. Often during our walks, we would have to stop and let her rest, as she was prone to dizzy spells and the like. She didn't let it deter her, though. Once her dizziness had passed, we would continue on as though nothing happened. During these explorations, we were lucky enough to stumble upon more berry bushes and wild grapevines, which would definitely help out in the food department for the next little while. The camp meal supply was getting a little low, and I knew I didn't get paid till the end of the next week. In truth, I wasn't looking forward to having to live on half-ripened fruit for any length of time, but it wasn't looking like I had a lot of choice. A trip to Junk Town for an evening meal was out of the question because of Tecky's weakened state. Any attempt to make it to that warehouse now would be a suicide run. It was during the day before I had to return to work that things took a turn. At the time, I couldn't say if they were for the better or not, and truthfully, I still can't. What I do know is that in one moment my life forever changed, and the true path to my destiny had begun to reveal itself. Teke had insisted she was getting stronger each day, and our exploration of the area was growing more extensive. We'd actually made it as far as the border to my clan's land on the day before, and she'd marveled at the buildings she could see in the distance. She commented on how wealthy the Kalamars must be in order to live in such finery, to which I could only shrug. In truth, I knew nothing of my family's wealth at the time, so there wasn't much I could say about it. I must have been staring too hard, for when Techie motioned for us to carry on, she had to give me a bit of a shake. I wasn't even aware of the tears falling from my eyes until she gently wiped them away. I'd been so angry at Father for what he'd done to me and at the rest of my clan for abandoning me the way they did. Yet I still missed them. Missed my life. I'd been staring so long at my former home in hopes that I could maybe see someone, just catch a glimpse of one of them. Of course, it didn't happen. It never would happen, would it? Looking at Takee as she wiped my tears away, I reminded myself that she needed my help. There was no time for me to act like this. It would do her recovery no good if her caregiver was little more than a blubbering mass of fur curled up in the corner. I thanked her for her help, and together we melted back into the forest. The hours passed as we combed through the wooded area bordering my former clan's land. We rested when Teki had to, and we managed to keep well fed on what we found in the woods. In spite of her condition, she seemed determined to spend as much time outside as she could. And this left me feeling a little uneasy, but I was no expert. For all I knew she was feeling perfectly fine and so long as she didn't feel the need to, we never bothered to head towards the dwelling. (laughs) I should have seen it coming. One moment we were walking side by side, and hand in hand, and the next I felt her begin to pull on me. I turned just in time to see her knees begin to buckle. I quickly pulled her up and into my arms, clumsily carrying her to a place where she could sit down. Her legs were shaking violently. Her legs were shaking violently, And had I not been weight training with Sensei the week before, I would have panicked. She was exhausted. She'd pushed her still-weak body well past what she should have, and now she was paying the price. "'What's happening to me?' she asked. "'Dallin?' The look in her eyes told me she was fully and utterly terrified. I knelt down before her and placed my hands on her shoulders. "'It's all right,' I said. "'It's okay. You just overdid it, Techie.' It'll pass, just... <clears throat> she wrapped her arms around me and held me in what felt like a death grip. Her breathing came in short, panicked gasps, and I could tell she was trying hard not to cry out. On reflex, I returned the embrace, all the while whispering to her the way a mother would comfort a kitten who'd had a bad dream. She buried her muzzle in my neck, and I could hear her begin to cry softly. Like when I left her that one morning, the sound of her crying made my heart sink. God. I should have insisted. I should have carried her back to the dwelling against her will, damn it! Instead, here I was, cradling this cougar in my arms as she wrote out the after-effects of overexerting herself. After about a half hour, her shaking subsided. Her cries faded to soft whimpers, and eventually we loosened our holds on each other. Now it was my turn to wipe tears from her eyes, and her muzzle twisted into a smile, which caused more tears to fall from her eyes. Thank you, she said softly. Thank you for everything, Dallin. It's been my pleasure, I said. She brought her hand up to stroke along my muzzle, and this time I covered it with my own and closed my eyes, savoring the feeling of her touch. I nuzzled her hand hard, wanting to milk every last drop of feeling from this gesture, fearing that it would be one of few to come my way. My fears, it seemed, were unfounded. I tilted my head slightly, bringing her hand towards my lips and kissing it gently. I felt her tense slightly and I thought she was going to pull away. Instead, she leaned in towards me and I felt myself doing the same. The moment our muzzles met, I thought my head was going to explode. Any thoughts of Shiana, carnal or otherwise, instantly vanished from my mind with that one kiss. My hands ran down her arms, and I slowly collected her into my embrace. She yielded to me, and before long we were clinging to each other tightly, muzzles locked to each other and our tongues battling clumsily. I had no idea what I was doing, but she seemed to, so I just followed her lead. I couldn't help but start purring loudly, and she soon joined me. Our bodies seemed to resonate as we continued to kiss. Now. Being a male, just on the verge of his coming of age, and kissing for the first time, well, needless to say my body started reacting in an all-too-typical way. I tried to be discreet about it, but she wasn't having it. She began to lay back on the ground and I followed, not wanting to break what our mouths were doing to each other. Before long I was a topper, hearing her moan slightly as my weight pressed down on her. When the kiss finally broke, I realized that I hadn't been breathing the entire time and gasped loudly. She giggled at that, but she was breathing pretty heavily herself. Her laughter was infectious, and before long we were both laughing quietly. Even though our embrace relaxed somewhat, Teke's hands didn't seem to be in a hurry to go anywhere. Wow, was all I could really say. She craned her neck up and gave me another light kiss before letting out what felt like a final reluctant sigh. You've been so mature all this time, she said. I almost forgot your age. I blushed and silently cursed myself. During our all-night conversation, I told her my true age, and that my coming of age was still a week away. She was actually one year past her own coming of age, so if anyone had caught us in this position, she could have been arrested for molestation of a minor. I looked at her sheepishly realizing that she could have torn my clothes off and yiffed me into another coma and I wouldn't have cared. However, exiles though we were, we still had a sense of morals about us, and we reluctantly separated. Sorry, I muttered, brushing the dirt and the dead leaves off her back. Guess I'm still a cub at the mercy of his hormones. I didn't really feel sorry, though. The feeling of her in my arms had been more than just good or even great to me. Somehow, the two of us entwined like that felt, well, complete. Takee responded to that by turning back towards me and planting another soul-searing kiss on my muzzle. I tensed for a moment, but then melted into her embrace once again for a wonderful but agonizingly short time. When the kiss finally broke, she stared into my eyes with a look of such deep sincerity it was almost unnerving. Don't feel sorry, she said. And don't ever, ever feel ashamed of your feelings, no matter where they take you. She didn't let me go until I'd nodded in understanding of what she was saying. "'I guess we should be heading back,' I said. "'It'll probably be dark by the time we get there. Can you walk?' "'I think so,' she said after taking a few tentative steps. I saw her tense, though, as her left leg began to shake. She cursed under her breath, and she leaned against a nearby tree. "'I'm sorry,' she said, her voice cracking again. A few minutes before, I would have been concerned, but I merely smirked. Without a word, I moved towards her and scooped her up into my arms. She let out a quick mule of surprise to being picked up like that, but it didn't take long for her to settle against me. With my implants, she was light as a feather in my arms, though I can't imagine a feather ever looking as beautiful as she did. There we go, I said. Problem solved. She leaned her head against my shoulder and closed her eyes as I made my way down the path that would eventually take us back to the dwelling, towards a place that was fast becoming a home. Sure enough, the sun had all but set by the time I saw our destination. The dwelling seemed to emerge out of the growing darkness the closer we got to it, like some apparition materializing before us. It felt as if once inside and behind that closed door, Takei and I would somehow be swallowed up by it, protected not only from the elements, but from anyone or anything out there bent on destroying us. Even though the Shatlia knew where the place was, and even though the rather flimsy lock on the door could easily be broken, the dwelling still felt like an impenetrable fortress that could withstand the charge of the largest of armies. It felt like home, and the reason for that was still sleeping soundly in my arms. She'd slept through the entire journey back, her body desperately needing to rejuvenate itself after being pushed so hard. Well, it made the walk back a little on the boring side. and also gave me a lot of time to think, which isn't always the healthiest thing when you're a cub on the verge of becoming a man. Takei's kiss had been as unexpected as a blow to the muzzle, but it felt as right as fate to me. It had come completely out of nowhere, yet when our lips touched it felt natural as if we'd been intimate for years. For the entire walk back, my brain had worked overtime to try and make sense of the feelings racing through me. My lips were still tingling from the sensation, and more than once I'd been tempted to just close my eyes and let my mind wander back to those moments together. My body had reacted, the way any males would to such things, but there'd been something else, another kind of swelling, if you will, but from deep within. It had felt as though some kind of great weight had been lifted off my shoulders the moment we'd kissed, allowing my heart to swell up with, well, with love. Everyone talks about love at first sight, though I don't think anything could be further from the truth. No one's heart could be so easily swayed, and if it was, then they were either foolish or desperate. Love was something one grew into, wasn't it? Didn't love emerge from being around someone so long that you can't imagine your life without them? Don't Don't feel ashamed, ashamed, she'd said. Ashamed? I was scared out of my stripes with what I was feeling. I looked down at her sleeping form, and I felt thankful she wasn't awake to return my gaze or ask me if I was alright. In truth, at that moment I wouldn't have known what to say. Love? Love? Was it possible? Had I fallen in love with her? She began to stir slightly, and I was able to dismiss my earlier thoughts as her eyes finally opened. "'We're here,' I said softly. She yawned and nuzzled my shoulder. "Mm, "'Do I have to get up?' she said tiredly. "'I wanted to say no. I would have been more than happy to simply prop myself up against the wall of the dwelling and keep her cradled in my arms all night.' If I didn't have to go to work the next day, I would have, too. But, with my mind and body about to be thrust back into the real world in the morning, I needed all the rest I could get. She seemed to sense this and readied herself as I set her back on her feet. She breathed a sigh of relief as she didn't start shaking, though she seemed pretty reluctant to let me go. I'll get some wood for tonight, I offered, looking towards the woodpile beside the dwelling. I'll get our beds ready. She said, giving me an affectionate peck on the cheek before heading for the door. I remember my adolescent mind wondering briefly just exactly what she was planning. In truth, I couldn't wait. Unfortunately, fate decided that I would have to wait. The scream was what I heard first, followed by a deep, guttural scream. I froze. Someone was in the dwelling. Someone else. With her. Ready to... No. The rage began to build within me as I dropped the trio of logs I was carrying and made for the door. My heart began to pound mercilessly in my chest, and I could feel my implants begin to tingle slightly. My blood became alight with adrenaline, twisting not only my body, but also my mind into something just a degree or two below what some would call civilized. I swore I could feel my fangs begin to itch with anticipation as Techie's scream still echoed in my mind. A mind that was fast becoming fevered with lust. No. blood lust. I burst through the door and roared out my challenge. The intruder stopped momentarily, his hand raised towards Tehki as if to deliver a slap to her. He would dare? He would dare to strike the woman I love? In my own home? Never! I closed the distance between he and I in a heartbeat and grabbed his shoulder. With one hand, I pulled with everything I had, flinging him across the dwelling. He hit the opposite wall hard enough that I thought I'd killed him, yet he was still able to stand, albeit shakily. I charged him again, grabbing him and throwing him yet again. He roared pathetically as he sailed through the air, landing soundly on the floor and sliding against the opposite wall. I remember cursing myself after that rather ill-executed throw. I didn't want him to just hit the wall. I wanted that Pakla to go through it. I moved in on him again, but this time, instead of standing, he backed himself up against the wall and gazed up at me. The scent of fear came off him in waves, assaulting my senses and making me want to end him even more. A low, guttural growl emanated from my throat as I moved in, fists clenched, claws out, and the thirst for his blood making my mouth water. I licked my lips slowly, running my tongue over my fangs, and making sure this intruder got a good, long look at what would soon be sinking into his neck. Funniest thing about bloodlust, while it heightens the instincts, it also partially blinds you. Everyone who's ever had a pet knows how the base instincts can instantly wash away years of conditioning. Don't believe me? Toss your pet cat into a tub of water and then try to cuddle it right afterwards. At that moment in time my instincts were burning like a nuclear furnace inside, and all I saw before me was someone, someone who dared to intrude into my territory and bring harm to one under my care. Beyond that, I saw nothing else. Dallin? Is that you? The voice was vaguely familiar, Distorted somewhat, thanks to my mind still hearing Takeh scream. Yeah, so, this Pakla recognized me. Big deal. That probably made them a clansman. Perhaps even a Shatlia come to prove himself by killing an exile. The only blood to be spilled would be his, though. I planned to decorate the trees around the dwelling with his entrails as a message to any other who would dare such a feat. Still, something about that voice was it? Why did it sound so familiar? It's me, Delan. Don't you recognize me? My body remained tense, but the fog of the bloodlust was beginning to lift and my vision was clearing. The creature sitting on the floor with his back to the wall was a tiger. A hauntingly familiar tiger. He looked older than me and his voice was a fair bit deeper. Recognition was right there, just a hair beyond what my rage-filled mind was able to comprehend. I wanted to calm down just enough so I could sort this out, but that primal urge to defend, to kill, was just too strong. Let the rage pass. His voice was almost hypnotic now. The scent of fear that had been coming off him before was now gone, allowing my mind to clear a bit more. He slowly began to rise from his seated position, though he kept himself against the wall as much as he could. Let the rage bleed out of you, he said. Let reason take command, Dallin. He took a step towards me and I tensed, growling again. Please, Dallin, he said softly, come back. He moved no further, but he didn't retreat either. Damn it, his face was so familiar to me. Why couldn't I remember? Come back, little one. It was like someone had pulled me out of the water by the scruff of my neck. Little one. Only one person in existence had ever called me that, even after I stopped being so little. It felt like someone had unplugged me from the rage I was feeling. My body relaxed, and almost instantly I began to shake as the adrenaline high faded away. With clear sight and hearing, I gazed at the tiger before me, savage bloodlust replaced by utter disbelief. He merely nodded in answer to my unasked question. I launched myself at him and nearly tackled him to the ground, embracing him as tightly as I dared. Whatever Teki he thought of me at that moment, I didn't care. I buried my face in his chest, tears of pain and joy soaking into his shirt. My mind couldn't figure out what it wanted to do more, cry laugh, roar. I think it settled on a combination of all three, which probably sounded a little odd. I didn't care, though, the utter joy at seeing him again, mixed with the nagging guilt that I'd nearly killed them all but overrode any sense of modesty I had left. "'Shh,' he soothed, hugging me tightly. "'It's all right now, Dallin. It's all right.' He held me until I calmed down, at which point he let me go. I took a step back and looked towards Tekki, who looked now both confused and still afraid. The intruder first looked to me, and then to her, and then bowed lowly. "'I am truly sorry, milady,' he said. "'I humbly beg your forgiveness. "'I feared you were an intruder here, though (laughs) it would seem I am the intruder.' "'Who—who are you?' she asked, her voice trembling. "'My name?' Is one Chang Calamar, he replied, looking at my now beaming face. Elder of the Tiger's Paw Clan, and Dallin's grandfather. You've been listening to Outcast, a podcast-only novel written and read by Chris Fitzman. For more information, please check out the show's website at outcastnovel.mebio.com. The music for this podcast is the song Electric Blue by Droon. Additional music for this episode is Catch Mars. It Came True, and John Schmidt's All of Me, all of which are available at the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com.
1: Cover art for Outcast was created by Jason Frieden. The President of the United States is dead. He was murdered in the morning sunlight by a four-year-old boy. So began J.C. Hutchins' Seventh Son book Trilogy, the most popular podcast novel series in history. Last December, the trilogy concluded. The heroes were triumphant, or so we think. But now, it's time to go back and reveal moments in the Seventh Son story that were merely hinted at in the original trilogy. Welcome to Seventh Son Obsidian. J.C. Hutchins has opened up his Seventh Son universe, and invited the seven biggest names in podcast fiction to chronicle a nationwide blackout that rocked America during the Seven Sun Trilogy. Seventh Sun Obsidian features short stories from these award-winning and nominated authors. Michael A. Stackpole, Scott Sigler, T. Morris, Mur Lafferty, Matt Wallace, Mark yoshimoto Nemkov, and Christiana Ellis and even more tales from these trailblazing podcast Entertainment. Evo Terra, Dan Klass, Wichita Rutherford, George Krom, TD-0013, Soccer Girl, and the cast of The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd. Obsidian also features dozens of audio and video recordings, stories of the blackout as told by its victims, created by Seven Sun fans across the globe. On May 31st, the lights go out. America becomes a police state. Because when the power fails, chaos reigns. Subscribe now to 7th Sun Obsidian or catch up with the original 7th Sun Trilogy experience at jchutchins.net.